0: So Parth, what have you been eating?
1: Thanks for asking, Trent. It's I just nice to had...
0: see you. Oh, you're too sweet to me. S- settle down. All right, proceed.
1: Okay. Um, I had spaghetti and eggplant parmesan. Parmigiano, if you will.
0: Yeah, I see. Yeah, our Italian accents tend to come out whenever you know Italian cuisine is discussed, but I. I it's how I...
1: it's it's how they talk.
0: Uh, who prepared it?
1: Um, my dad and my brother made it yesterday, so this was um reheated, if you will.
0: Uh, Microwaved?
1: Well, the the eggplant Parmesan, like the eggplant Parmesan part of it was microwaved, and then we boiled some new spaghetti. A
0: a big problem I have in my life since I've started living alone is that whenever I lived with my parents, if I was about to put something in the microwave, like no matter what it was, I would ask them, and for some reason as people who've been on Earth for 50 years, they knew exactly and now that I'm out on my own, I have no idea how long to put these things in the microwave for. Like, yeah, s- some things are one minute, and some things are like four minutes, and some things are between. Who's right? Like my my parents. That's who.
1: It's a scary I, world out there.
0: S- sometimes I call them on the phone, and I'm like,
1: Do you well, actually? What do I
0: do? Well, I, I I still need to microwave food. My who else would I call? My landlord, or like? Oh mm, yeah I mean, you
1: could just my, do the trial and. Uh, The trial trial of the Chicago 7 Yeah, you could trial the Chicago 7 Your food
0: And that's a segue uh, Into the fact that we are a podcast Parth, what have you been eating?
1: Oh, thanks for asking, Trent Um, I just had some spaghetti And eggplant parmesan Parmigiano, if you will So Trent, what have you been eating?
0: Thanks for popping the question Um, My cornerstone of attempted health In high school was, do you know, like, the little, like, grenades of, like, naked smoothies? Sure. Um, so, uh, my parents gave me those year after year, and they were just like, don't look at the label, and, be- because... <laughs> like, the word naked was too much? <laughs> no, 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 as in, if I looked at the amount of, like, added sugar, I, we Oh, oh, okay, okay. We couldn't, we couldn't live in the facade that it was healthy. Yeah, and,
1: you couldn't, and... in good conscience, say that you were... You know eating healthy.
0: yeah, so drinking. I had I had that. Um, well, I had one of those today because I you know it's it's a hard habit to break. Um, and I also had a rice cake with some peanut butter on it because I guess if it's bland and it tastes like nothing, it must must be good for you, you know.
1: Speaking of bland things, let's cut to something that's not bland at all. in fact, very cool. Our program cue the intro. That was good, nice. right. Sure.
0: How about you bring us back in? All right. You ready? I feel like you never do. I never do. I I?
1: I, want to hear your voice, Trent. Please bring us back in.
0: Welcome back to Craft Services. The podcast, our show, where we talk about the movies. Uh, Each week, you know, we pick a film we like, and we interview someone who worked on it. This, uh, Parth, uh, I haven't... No, you keep going,
1: keep going. I'm keeping this all in.
0: Spider-Man week is among us. Am I wrong? Uh,
1: No, I would say you're very correct.
0: So we interviewed the art director, Steve Arnold. Whew! Uh, did you enjoy it, Parth?
1: I thought this was a great interview.
0: Yeah, we talked Spider-Man. We talked Fear and Loathing. What else was discussed? Um, there was We talked fin- Maltese Falcon? Well, yes, we did. He showed us his Maltese Falcon replica off-air, so we're, we're, we're sorry.
1: You, you'll be able to see it in the eventual Instagram post for when this episode gets uploaded.
0: All right, but don't tell anyone. It's a little secret. Shh. Shh. It's
1: just between us.
0: The humble viewers of the show.
1: Speaking of which, should we should we let the humble viewers listen to this interview? Or or should we just be like, no. We'll keep it to ourselves.
0: Steve Arnold, you know, Spider-Man's art director, is much smarter, much better, much cooler, much calmer, much more collected than us. And he his things are much more insightful. So let, let, let's go to him, you know, right? All right, let's... Yeah, yeah. I think
1: we should just, uh... uh, uh, Do the interview! interview.
0: Let's give it away to Steve. He deserves it. He worked on Spider-Man, goddammit. Does that mean nothing to you, Parth?
1: Hello, and welcome to our interview with Steve Arnold. He's worked on many projects you have probably heard of, such as Forrest Gump, Unbreakable, and Mindhunter. He was also the supervising art director for our film today, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So we like to start start off our interviews by just asking what got you introduced into the film world and how you got started in the industry. Uh, A little bit of a circuitous route. Um,
2: I was a a design major for theater when I was in college, did scenery for theater productions and things like that. And when I was in grad school, I was uh, back in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. And the head of the design department came to me one day and he said, I'm doing this small movie Uh, it's a a television movie. And, um, since he was a professor, he didn't have time to devote his entire day to it. He said, would you be my assistant and help me out on the, on the little movie? And, uh, if you do this, you, I will give you credit. You don't have to come to class, uh, for this spring semester. And on top of that, the, uh, company is going to pay you. And I said, cool, I'll do it. And uh, like a lot of things in Pittsburgh, it was a fairly small market of people who did uh, film and television commercials and things like that. And so once I got on a crew list, um, then I just started getting calls after that for small films, uh, commercials, you a variety of different things. I still was thinking I would ultimately go to New York and um, still uh, stay in theater, but um, theater does not pay very well, and uh, it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, uh, tough business. And uh, although I loved it, uh, I really, I just kind of stayed in in film and ended up getting some, you know, some pretty good sized projects. Uh, Mississippi Burning being one of them, um, and then a few little things in Pittsburgh, and then I finally decided I'm going to end up in California. I might as well just go there and get it over with. So I, I got in my little car and drove to California, and I've been doing it ever since.
1: Yeah, we we talked with Stephen Tobolowski, who was in Mississippi Burning, so that, ah, yes. a nice little connection. Yes.
0: So when you got to California in your little car, what was your first major project you worked on there and what was your position?
2: So I was lucky, I guess. I didn't know anybody really. I knew I had a few few names of people. Um, I uh, went for an interview and this was about six days after I arrived. And I was told that, well they don't really have a position for, for anybody. They were just being polite talking to me, but, um, um, they said, talk to this other person. He's, he's going to have, uh, he's, he's got a job. And, um, I started on general hospital at the very bottom of the ladder, uh, just being a set designer there. And I worked for six months, until another Alan Parker movie came along and, uh, I never went back to, uh, you know, daytime television gladly.
1: Uh, we were wondering, cause you've worked in a, in a few different, as a few different positions, if you could explain the difference between a production designer an art director and a set designer ah, yes. and just what the, the hierarchy of that
2: is. Yes. So, um, yeah, generally in the old days, back when there was a studio system, the very bottom level in the art department was somebody who basically just ran blueprints. And they would have a big room of set designers, kind of either architecturally trained people or people who had, you know, had a, a background in drafting. And... Um, and so the blueprint person was just someone who ran blueprints for all of these set designers. And they would learn from looking at the drawings and, you know, being around other people who were drafting things. So uh, nowadays the the beginning level or kind of the bottom is a set designer. Really it's, it's somebody who is able to do architectural drawings um, Now it's mostly digital. Um, people use various programs, SketchUp and Rhino and Maya and AutoCAD and all these different programs. And, um, they're the ones who really do a lot of the design work. Um, they're overseen by assistant art directors and art directors, which are the next levels up. Um, some people come in as an assistant or even an art director and don't have the background as a set designer or a draftsman. But uh, I always think it's, it's really important to, to have that foundation and that skill uh, because later on you're going to be asked to read drawings and to interface with the construction department and various other departments. And if you can't read a drawing, then you're, you're kind of at a loss. So the next level, art director or assistant, uh, there's some uh, flexibility there. Art directors normally supervise like all the people who are uh, in the art department. They kind of run the art department. Uh, There's an art department coordinator is kind of a secretarial type job. Uh, There are graphics people who get hired who do things for signage and book covers and record jackets and, you know, just all kinds of graphic work. Um, And then art directors are people who really interface with all the other departments, the construction department, the paint department, the picture vehicles, locations, sometimes um, uh, special effects, just, just all the different, uh, groups that are there, costumes. But, but then the production designer is really overseeing all of that. And when people ask me what I do as a production designer, my shorter answer is when you watch a film or a television series, everything that you see on the screen that is not a costume or an actor I probably had something to do with choosing it, um, designing it, or influencing it in some way. So we, as a production designer, you will go with a director and you will scout locations because not everything gets built. Sometimes you're in a situation where you can uh, use existing locations. And you. when we did House of Cards, we used a lot of Uh, existing locations in in and around Baltimore. That doubled for Washington, D.C. Very uh, beautiful, majestic uh, buildings that would cost too much to duplicate um, from, you know, scratch. So you start out with doing a lot of location work. You kind of set the tone for the uh, the uh, feeling of the show, the kind of the uh, emotional, uh, depth of the show, the, uh, uh, palette, uh, whether it's dark and gloomy and, or it's, if it's a comedy, it's bright and cheerful. And, you know, you kind of control that part of it working with the director. A lot of times, like with David Fincher, he has very, very specific ideas and he has a very specific kind of look and feel that he likes to use and a certain palette that, that we tend to use when, when I work with him. Um, but, um, you know, I supervise all the, the, um, people in the art department and I'm very hands on with construction because I have a background in that and the painters, I was a scenic painter when I was in theater. So I, I do a lot of supervising of those, uh, craft people who do that
0: so for all three of those positions like on set after you've set the stage so to speak and everything is where it's supposed to be and you step back and the people start acting what's like what's your job to just start working on the next one or is there are there any additional responsibilities like once the set is constructed
2: there are always things that come up there are always changes there are always, you know, um, additions. Can we can we change this? Can we? Uh, we've decided to rewrite this part. Uh, we're going to need a door here. We're going to need a, uh, you know, a basement that never was written into the script or, or something like that. I've been very lucky uh, since I've been designing to have a, a wonderful on-set dresser person who is part of the set decorating department, but he's there on the set as it's being shot. And he's kind of my eyes and ears. And if somebody comes in, particularly in television, you have multiple directors a lot of times, you know, a a director will direct two episodes and then someone new will come in to do the next two episodes, something like that. And he will text me or he'll email me and he'll say, well, the director's asking for uh, a lamp over here, you know, uh, or the DP might be. Uh, can you can you direct me to what would be the appropriate one, or, uh, you know, do you want me to make that choice or, or whatever? So uh, I've been really lucky to have somebody who is quite uh, quite brilliant at at uh, watching the 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 filming unfold and being able to make a contribution that, uh, helps the, the look of the film or television.
1: So pivoting a little bit, um, we, to get into the main topic of the day, uh, we just want to ask how you ended up getting involved, uh, with Spider-Man in 2002.
2: So, uh, the designer, Neil Spizak was someone that I had done several other, uh, films with and, uh, He and I got along very well, and um, he called me. He said, I've got this show. Um, uh, I was on, uh, I might have been on Unbreakable or something at the same, at that point. He said, who who do you want to come in early? Because I couldn't come right then. And I recommended uh, Tony Fanning, who was somebody that I had also worked with and and knew very well, uh, to come in and kind of um work in between uh the time when i was going to be starting and um and then i finally uh was done with the other show and came along and uh we got started on that and uh you know we did uh scouting in new york uh because we did end up shooting a fair amount in new york uh and uh you know starting to hire the crew and uh, that's another thing that the art director normally gets involved with. Uh, we might, I might be able to uh, be in a position to choose the construction coordinator and the painter and people like that. Or sometimes the designer will do that. But um, as a supervising art director, I was involved in some of that.
0: So I read that uh, Sam Raimi like made a lot of his own storyboards for like all three of the movies. So did you like have? Were you able to like look at those or, or use those for reference? And if so, how did it how how did it affect you?
2: In truth, Sam hires about eight or nine storyboard artists, and so and that's a lot of storyboard artists for for a, a show. Um but they would um, they would all work in a room with him and he's great with coming up with new ideas. Some of the storyboard artists also come up with ideas and um, yes, we would go through we would have meetings where he would sit down with uh, Neil and myself and the special effects department and the visual effects department and you know a lot of the other locations people and, Picture cars and all of that, we would talk about a big car chase sequence or something else. And those are the kinds of things that really get storyboarded very, very uh, carefully because they're so complicated uh, to shoot.
1: So, tr- to get into a few specific scenes, um, if you could talk about the sets and things like that, um, w- we'd like to start with the cage match. Uh, which is like his first, um, I guess, fight. yes. <laughs> so um, what was the construction? Was that a set or was that? That was a,
2: that was a set. It was all built on stage over at Sony. And um, I think it might've been on stage 27. I can't remember. It was, this was 20 years ago, um, but it was all built. It was, it, there was a lot of special uh, engineering. The, the, um, the bars in the cage had to be a certain softness and a certain flexibility so that they didn't, you know, like take somebody's front teeth out or, you know, do real uh, physical harm. Um, but yeah, it was a big, uh, there was a lot of engineering that went into that where the, all the pieces come together and they go up and down and all the rest of that. So a lot of special effects, uh, involvement there. And, um, I'm trying to remember what we did for extras um, in the crowd. There, sometimes we use um, in those days before the a lot of the digital work. Uh, we, we would use inflatable people, um, which you could get, and you could put them in any costume you wanted, and um, they would just be populated with a mixture of uh, real extras, so that you know you didn't have to have. Thousands of people, you could just have, you know, a couple hundred people and make it seem like it was full.
0: Uh, so, the next one we were curious about, speaking of scenes that may have been shot in New York, uh, the upside down kiss and what it, and I'm sure you had to like work with a lot of rain machines on that and what, what that was all about.
2: Yes. That was shot, uh, I believe that was shot on the back lot at Warner Brothers. Um, and, uh, And yes, there was, there was a lot of, um, issues with, um, uh, the upside, upside down rain getting in their nose, in their face, in their mouths, in their whatever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was on a backlog.
0: I was listening to the director's commentary and apparently, it was actually Tobey Maguire, and that they made some sort of mechanism for him to quickly like go off screen down the an alley, and then he was actually the person who was upside down. And I would have I would have always thought that it would have been a, either a cut or an extra, but it, it was a continuous. It shot. was him. Yeah, it was
1: him. Yeah. One of my favorite sets in the movie is J. Jonah Jameson's office, or like the whole of the Daily Bugle. Because yes. um, I think it's just it's like a wonderfully like comic booky type feel to it. And I was wondering if, uh, was what the process was on building that. So we originally had planned
2: on building that on stage. There was a previous, uh, script that had, uh, the green goblin crashing through one of the windows and flying around the daily bugle offices and all the rest of that. And we, we literally started building it and it was based on the Flatiron building in New York. Um, a big triangular building that was one of the early skyscrapers way back in the, I don't know, teens or 20s or something. Um, I think it's
1: the Continental in the John Wick movies. It's been
2: in a lot of movies. It's been in a lot of movies. If you uh, should happen upon uh, my uh, Facebook page, you will see me standing on the top edge of the Flatiron building. And we were up there taking uh photographs for uh some big uh backings some big trans lights that we were shooting and richard lund and i had climbed up a ladder from the uh top floor up onto that roof and literally i'm standing right on the edge uh of it and um it's a very 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 windy little corner right there uh somehow it just the wind comes through there and that was the winter time so i'm all like totally bundled up and everything but ultimately your to get back to your question uh they decided to not build it on stage and um we ended up using a building downtown in los angeles uh the pacific electric building which was kind of uh, a very popular um location we did a bunch of um face off inside there it was used for many 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 films uh, it had great old interior corridors and you know when you were doing a police station or a office old Sam Spade kind of thing uh, that's where you would go and it has these big curved radius windows up at the top and so when we ended up doing the the bugle we we built it into that uh, existing space downtown, and um, uh, we had to do quite a bit of work because it, it was an older building that had just been used for filming for many, many years. It's been turned into loft condos now, um, but um, it was. Uh, I remember the ceiling was falling apart, and we we had to do a lot of retrofitting to uh, bring it up to.
1: When the green goblin like he like bursts in and the wall sort of explodes, how did you? Did you expl- Did you like break the real wall, or did you create
2: no, a no. fake one? No, no, we had fake we had fake walls, and a lot of that was you know sort of pieced together um, after the fact. Yeah.
0: So with some of the fully animated sequences, whether it be uh, just like some of the various montages, or like the opening or Spider Man just swinging through the city, did do you play any role in that, or is that like all visual effects? If there aren't tactile like Props it's, and stuff.
2: It's it's probably mostly um, uh, visual effects. I think when we were in the high school cafeteria, and there were some uh, shooting of webs and things like that. As I recall, there were some some uh, special effect things, some practical things that were rigged to to fly around and to get snapped and things like that. Um, but generally, uh, if, if it would have been something that the art department w- was involved with, um, then maybe Neil as a designer might've, you know, they might've come to him and said, you know, we need, we need something to do this or move or, or whatever. Um, but I, I can't recall right now anything specifically, um, that, that all that stuff with the, uh. The uh stuff in Times Square where the balcony collapses and all of that. That was all built in uh with hydraulics and a lot of a lot of real engineered uh elements uh and and planned and practiced and,
1: and all of that. Yeah, uh like Trent, uh, I also listened to the commentary track beforehand and uh with like Sam Raimi uh and he talked a lot about how lots of New York is sort of stitched together with, like, fake elements. Like, that balcony doesn't exist, but it has to look like it's part of Times Square. And we were wondering, especially around 2002, there was, like, a big VFX boom. And so we were wondering, like, when you have to um, get all these elements together, does that make your job more difficult when you have to coordinate with, like, fake backgrounds and... Um, Different sh- things shot at different places, like the Times Square thing or the ending battle on the bridge. I I don't know that it makes it more difficult. I mean it it
2: requires a lot of planning. Um, so uh, shooting, uh, we had originally planned on shooting quite a bit in Times Square. Shooting in Times Square is really really hard, uh, and uh, 20 years ago it was it was still hard. Um, It's so busy, there's so many people, it's so hard to control everything. So we ended up building uh, a mock-up of uh, Times Square in full size in this giant parking lot down in Downey where a lot of other uh, films uh, work because it's just this nice, big, flat, empty space. And we built the bottom story of basically all the shops and all the buildings around Times Square and then uh, the top of all of that was extended with visual effects and uh, we could make uh, Times Square the way we wanted it to be to match as you said the the big uh, hotel with the uh, balcony and, and things like that um, that was uh, you know something that we could then manipulate and make it our own, basically.
0: So, uh, I think the bridge fight, uh, I'm just curious about how that was, if that was primarily green screen, if you guys were actually on the top of a bridge at any point. Uh,
2: that was primarily green screen. We built a portion of the bridge on stage, like the elements of the um, uh, structure of it. And uh, and then it was all green screen, pr- primarily.
1: Trent, do you want to move on to David Fincher?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's approximately Fincher o'clock. Yeah, pop the question. Okay,
1: Wonderful. Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you for talking about Spider-Man. But uh, sure. you've worked with uh, a few of our favorite directors, one of them being David Fincher, who you mentioned previously. And we were wondering, you on your IMDb, it says you started working with him for reshoots for... Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, yes. And then you worked on House of Cards and Mindhunter. And we were wondering, what's it like working with the man? And how how did that um, relationship evolve? Uh, it's very interesting. I, uh, I had
2: uh, uh, got a call that uh, they needed somebody to come over and help out. And I was... Uh, I had started designing at that point, but I didn't have a job, uh, designing anything. And so I said, okay, I'll come over and art direct. And they said, oh yeah, I knew, I knew the other art director there. And, uh, they, uh, were doing quite a bit. It was a fairly extensive reshoot. They rebuilt the the little, uh, house, the little cabin where they hide out. And, you know, uh, the, uh the the dock with the boat and the uh, hillside and they they built a lot of stuff and uh, but it was a it was a an eye opening experience to uh, get thrown into the middle um, and they uh, uh, Don Burt who was the production designer who works with David uh, uh, primarily with films that he does um, he he uh, Uh, took me aside one day and he said, um, David uh, wants you to see if you can come up with a scenario for this whole evidence wall that is in the, you know, the little house. Um, And they tried it a couple of different ways and shot uh, things that uh, David didn't feel were very successful. And so I put together a couple of uh, versions, a couple of three different versions options. And, uh, and then, and then I'd only been there like two or three days. And, and then Don Burt said, um, uh, well, I'm going to have you go in, uh, by yourself, uh, with, uh, David, uh, is that all right? Will, will you be okay? Uh, if I'm not there. And, uh, I thought about it for a second and I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll figure it out. And, uh, and then uh, I went in and I showed him three things. He picked one of them. And, um, and then uh, not too uh, much later, uh, Don Burt pulled me aside and he said, David really likes you.
0: That's high praise <sighs> from the man himself. <laughs> and,
2: and so, um, you know, we hit it off. We're both super perfectionist type people. I mean, meticulous to a fault, and um, I, I totally get—I totally get him—and um, I love working with him because, uh, I mean, he makes you—he makes you better. He makes you do your best, um, and you know, he's—he's—he's he's, he's tough. He's—he's he's a tough guy but he knows everything about everybody's job. He knows everybody's job better than they do. And there's nothing, there's nothing about technology or cameras that he does not know. He's on the cutting edge of of all of that, lenses. And he was a photographer years ago and um, you can see it in his work. Every frame on a film is, is is a photograph really, you know. And um uh, there's nothing uh left to chance. Nothing is on the set that shouldn't be there. There's a reason for it. It's got it's got some logic involved, and um I, I love I love working with him. He's uh, he's the best. And I've worked I've worked with many.
1: I'm I'm a huge mindhunter fan, and I, I just yes. wanted to ask um because obviously that's a show that's sort of set in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of your production design on that was influenced by the real life, like FBI offices and jail cells and how much of that was sort of artistic and creative freedom or what was the push and pull with that?
2: So we were fortunate enough. The series Mindhunter is based on the book by uh, Douglas, John Douglas and, um, He's a still very uh i guess he's still alive he's he's quite old um but um he was when we when we started the show and he was a he's part of he's part of the show um like a producer or executive producer or something like that um and because he's so well liked, we were able to go to Quantico uh David myself um Don Burke came with us because he was kind of transitioning. Uh, along with us and uh, Josh Donnen and all the producer types and they gave us like a, a backstage tour of Quantico we got to go places where you would never get to go um, and we went in the classrooms and we went all went through all of that and I'll have to say we copied most of all of that FBI stuff as as closely as we could possibly and um, I'm a stickler uh, for period things. And because I'm an old guy, I kind of know all that 70s stuff. I was alive during it. I went through it. I I was there. You survived. So, yes. So, um, so that was, uh, you know, something that we could really, um, you know, focus in on uh, the reality of it all. But many, many times, uh, and, and going into the show, David had said he didn't want to do, he said, this is, you know, 70s. This is the, the period. He didn't want to do Boogie Nights.
0: Mm.
2: He didn't want to do this over the top, oh, we're in the 70s, you know, so if we're going to do every 70s cliche that you've ever seen. He wanted it to be, the real 70s, sort of the mundane, everyday. These people are not special. They don't, you know, they don't have like the top of the line um um sorry um you know furniture and all the you know stuff. Uh it had to it had to be uh real and have a reality about it. So um and shooting in a place like Pittsburgh, which has many, many um, small towns around and, and, and things like that, that are caught in, in the past. So it was very, very easy to um, come up with a lot of the, the props and the furniture and the vehicles and all that um, stuff was there.
0: So for Dragon Tattoo and Night of the Museum, you did uh, exclusively reshoots, and we were wondering, outside of proximity, uh, outside of you know length, uh, were there any? Are there any major difference uh, when you compare reshoots to like the main production?
2: Um, not a whole. There's not a whole lot of difference, but um, uh, reshoots uh, many times you're kind of, you already know uh, either what went wrong, uh, so you, you are correcting something that, you know, you're trying to fix, or, you know, you, you've been in the project for a while, and you, you have the depth of understanding that it's not just picking up the script for the first time. Uh, many times there's uh, changes. Uh, I'm working right now on some reshoots, for uh, a series I did up in Vancouver. Um, and they had a, a sequence that they thought, uh, I think they felt at the time it was too expensive or too elaborate or too complicated. And so they went another way when they finished the, the series. And now uh, Netflix has decided, you know that idea that you originally had? Let's see what that, how that works. So we're going back to, uh, you know, kind of square one again, and uh, I'm designing a bunch of things that I had originally designed, but were kind of thrown away uh, because we decided that they couldn't afford it, didn't want to or or whatever. So so yeah, you, you have a little more insight maybe in
1: reshoots. So moving along to another uh movie that you worked on, you were an assistant art director on Forrest Gump. And uh, we were wondering how had you get involved with that, what was that like, and you know, anything you could say on that? Um yeah, that was a
2: fantastic experience. We uh I had worked with the art director. Uh we had done uh Leslie McDonald was the art director. Uh, and, and we had done together, uh, a couple of other films, um, uh, with Dennis Gassner, the designer who's been doing, uh, a a lot of the Bond films lately. And, um, so, um, so she knew me and she brought me along. Um, and, um, I had a fantastic time. The, um, the Gump House, um, we designed and built that because we looked and looked and looked uh, at various locations around in the south and never found something that was quite right. And um, you know the whole the whole business with run forest run. So one of the reasons that we picked the location where we built that house was the driveway with the big trees. There are these big old oak trees and there's Spanish moss in them and the beautiful. And so um, that particular location uh, was a very large, I think it was 3000 acres uh, piece of land that had been a plantation at one point. And we ended up shooting um, not only the house there, But Jenny's Farm, which we was a little, uh, it was actually a true slave shack that was on the property that we moved into the middle of the field. And then we planted, we planted the crops. We planted the tobacco, the cotton. uh, We planted all that from seed. And I was there with the, agriculture agent or whatever he was Um, and we we uh, uh, I was there to supervise and also a couple of other locations were uh, on that same piece of property a lot of the Vietnam stuff was there Um, and also the large tree that as children they play under the tree and then in the end Jenny gets buried under the tree that was on the land and so I was kind of in charge of that whole uh, world of uh, Forrest's um, house and uh, Jenny's farm and all of that. And I went there every day for like four or five months where, while we built that house, that house was finished inside and out. It was air conditioned, insulated. It had real brick fireplaces Um And originally they had thought they would shoot some of that on stage, the upstairs part uh, where Sally Field dies and, you know, uh, Jenny dies and all that. And then Bob Zemeckis was like, uh, even though we built it all on on stage, he's like, you know, we really want to see out the window. Let's just finish the inside of the upstairs uh, of the uh, house that we built on location. So, um, and one interesting note, it's a small note, There were two big magnolia trees on either side of an empty space right by the river where there had been a house. uh, And I don't know if it burned during the Civil War or what, but the house was no longer there. And we went out one day with the director and we had some story poles and we had some elements that we could hold up and kind of move around and decide where we were going to put the house when we built it. And we finally decided on, okay, this is where we'd like it. It is overlooking the river. It's this far from the road. It's all of that. And months later, we had built the whole house and I had hired a mason, a brick mason to come in and do some, uh, the stairs and the fireplace and things like that. And we start digging down in front of the porch and we dig into the dirt and we find the bricks from the original stair from the house that had been there, I don't know, hundred 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 years before or how many years before. And it was quite amazing that it, it was exactly the same spot.
0: Uh, so so for, for a scump, uh, like you just described, was your entire responsibility like you never left the farm? Because I'm sure that the production, like it had a bunch of other locations, but is that a thing where... It, sometimes your role is just to, to stay in one spot and focus on, on, the, on the crops growing and stuff?
2: Yes, and that particular location was quite a ways away. It was at least, was close to an hour away from Beaufort, which is where we were all living and our offices were. And we had uh, a couple of other assistant art directors. One uh, guy, uh, Jim Fang, who did um, the Jungle Vietnam part, which was on uh, Fripp Island and a couple of other uh, areas down in there. And then uh, Tony did the uh, Savannah part, which was basically the park bench and um, you know, things like that.
0: Uh, so the next movie I wanted to ask you about was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And we were wondering if you had any relationship with the book prior or if you used the Ralph Steadman illustrations for influence and anything you could say.
2: That's a very interesting project. I didn't start that project. There was another art director- But you finished who le- it. Who left, the, uh, who left the project. And Alex McDowell, uh, I, was, I was friends with Nancy Haig, who was the decorator on that show. And she told Alex uh, that, she, that he needed to hire me. And so I got called on like a, a Friday, I think it was, and I met Alex and he said, we're going to Las Vegas. I fly out there on Sunday. I The teamster picks me up at the airport with my suitcase. He drives me to downtown Las Vegas. And I, I'm dropped off with my suitcase on the sidewalk. And I'm introduced to Terry Gilliam. Wow. And Terry says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Here's what I need, and he gave me this whole list of things, and I ran around and you know got things going. Um, it was it was one of those uh, projects that was fraught with a lot of. Um, um, I don't know if you are familiar with Lost in La Mancha, um, the uh, doc about um, uh, another Terry Gillian film that um, is is just classic. Um, there's a lot of chaos mm-hmm. and a lot of things go wrong. Is and that the you... Don Quixote yes. documentary? Okay. And if you've never seen it, uh, they screened it at um, um, LACMA years ago. And Terry was there and um, <sighs> he had lost control of the film. And he was trying to get the rights back. And he was pleading to, with anybody to... To try to help him get it back but yeah that's a if you've never seen it it's a it's a classic
1: what can go wrong with a project um so another picture you've worked on that's one of my dad's favorites my dad's one of my dad's favorite movies is get shorty and um yeah any barry sonnenfeld stories would be welcome any anything about it really
2: A very, very interesting note on that. Um, So I had worked with a a decorator in uh, Chicago. Uh, It was a New York, New York decorator who knew uh, uh, the designer and the designer was a New Yorker and, and uh, had never, had not really worked in California and needed an art director. And so Leslie suggested that Peter call me and uh, we hit it off. He was an old time theater designer. And, um, but um, just a a strange little note about that was um, Barry Sonnenfeld was one of a long list of possible directors for Forrest Gump. Really? Believe it or don't. And somewhere along the line, he was, this is a, you know, apocryphal story. I don't know if this is true, but um, he was like at an airport uh, gift shop and picked up a book, Get Shorty. And he read it and he's like, this is the movie I want to make. And somehow he left the project and and instead of doing forrest gump he did get shorty um several years later um and um fortunately zemetkus did forrest gump because
1: i guess we got two great movies out of it
2: he, he was he was the right guy for it
1: yeah
0: so uh you were uncredited as a set designer on wayne's world 2 and and we were wondering what that was all about. And uh, also, I watched a video about all the, 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 the Wayne's World production designer talking about all the wacky gadgets they had to make for that movie. So it seems like it would be a, a very zany set to design for.
2: So, um, again, uh, we, we all know each other in the business, kind of. That's kind of a small uh, circle of people. Uh, I was very good friends with the art director on uh, that show. And uh, I was waiting. I'm trying to go back and think now uh, because I don't have my chronology probably exactly right. But I was waiting for, it might have been Forrest Gump. Uh, It might have been Hutsucker Proxy. I think it was Forrest Gump. I knew I was going to get this job, but it wasn't going to start for like two months or something. And so... uh, when Rich uh, Toyon called me, he said, would you come and draw for a while? Um, I went in and uh, was a draftsman uh, on Wayne's World. And I think I I drew this huge sort of warehouse kind of uh, set. Uh, that's, that's about all I, re- I remember because uh, I was never there when they were shooting. I, I left long before it was even built, I think. I just came in. Worked for you know a few weeks or maybe a month and a half or something like that, and uh, finished the set and then went on to do the next film. That happens sometimes.
1: So you worked uh, again, another one of my favorite directors, uh, Steven Soderbergh. You worked on Solaris. Yes. Um, and yeah, uh, any stories from that would be an amazing,
2: an amazing welcome. project. Um, you know, uh, Stephen is, is so involved because he really does operate the camera. I mean, he really is the guy who shoots the film. And um, so uh, I was, I, I'd come off of another project and I knew, again, I knew the art director and he said, well, we need another art director. Um, and I knew the designer, Phil. So um, I went in, and um, because it was all futuristic, it was all space related. uh, I think we ended up getting a lot more money from the initial budget than you would ordinarily get on a movie that size, because we built an amazing number of of uh, futuristic sets for that, and I think they turned out looking beautifully. So yeah, it was, it was very, uh, construction intensive.
0: Oh, can you, I just, out of curiosity, uh, like Steven Soderbergh's like process on set, is he like a lot of takes guy? Is he a few takes guy somewhere in between,
2: you know, I was not on the set as much as sometimes, uh, I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, It seems like as I have gone, I've gotten higher and higher in the hierarchy. Sometimes I end up spending less time on sets, um, particularly when I'm doing uh, television series and things like that, because you're always trying to jump ahead to the next, you know, the next episodes or whatever. But um, no, I don't think he's like Fincher, where he does many, many takes, but I think he knows what he wants. uh, And you know, a lot of times it's it's up to the actors, you know, and he had very good actors. So
1: um, you don't necessarily need a lot of takes. Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, just because you brought up Fincher, um, because he's kind of such a perfectionist, and like you said, you are as well. Uh, when you're on set, does that, like, spending all that time, do you start, like on set changing things. Um, I mean, I guess you just said that you spend less time on set, but, um, just wondering. I,
2: I watch, I watch it all very, very carefully. And as I said, I was very, uh, lucky to have, uh, uh, this onset dresser, Nikolai Levekas, who would be my eyes and, you know, uh, visually, you know, steer the ship. But, um, but I still am the guy who will walk on and I will see that little thing that you're, I'm always shocked and amazed that the camera guy didn't see it, the director didn't see it. This isn't with Fincher. Fincher sees everything. But um, uh, oh, no and, you know, most other people, I'm like, what's that what's that little thing sticking out over there that shouldn't be there? or why is that picture crooked? or why didn't they turn the lampshade around so that we're not seeing this big dark seam you know i just am i'm a very visual person and um i'm always it it sort of drives people crazy a little bit but it's what i do
0: So this is sort of a general question, but let's say you're tasked with like decorating a living room. Uh, So are, is there like a massive prop house that you're going to walk into and say, I want that, that, and that, or are you going to like go out to like, uh, go out to like antique stores and try to find a specific lamp or or do you just write down on a piece of paper? Like I want a red lamp, someone else go find one.
2: So, what we didn't talk about and what is a very, very important part of the art department is the set decorating department. So set decorators are more than like interior designers. They are people who handle all the, the elements that maybe are not construction. Um, usually, you know, all the furniture, all the drapery, all the carpet all the small things the tchotchkes the lamps the lighting the all of that kind of stuff they are tasked with uh finding all of that and they normally have buyers that work with them and they supervise a crew of people who come in and set everything up sometimes if you're doing the white house the oval office or something like that um maybe those things are out there to rent, you know, the bust of Lincoln and, you know, that, you know, all of these kind of faux Remington sculptures and uh, historical uh, elements that are in a place like that. Um, But a lot of times you have to find things. As I said, in Pittsburgh, it was kind of a, a really great place to find stuff from the 70s, to find that great furniture or that fantastic lamp or, or a, an old cigarette machine or a, a, you know, a jukebox or something like that. The, that stuff was, was very easily uh, gettable there. Um, and uh, I, normally how it works is the decorator will bring photographs to me And we'll discuss, you know, the general vibe or the feel that a particular set should have. Are they, uh, you know, blue collar? Is it very sophisticated? Whatever. Normally that's apparent in the script. And then they'll bring me photographs or send me photographs of this is a couch or several sofas that I like. Uh, Here's a couple of chairs that go with that. This is the drapery fabric I like. Um, Do you think this is the right color scheme? They'll go back and forth, and you know we work together on it. Um, some some of them are much more independent um, and have a very uh, strong idea themselves. Um, other times, I'll I'll be you know more involved and say, uh, "This is exactly what I want. Can you find me some more of these hanging fixtures that look like this?" You know.
1: That's great. So, um, I guess we'll just ask about one more movie and then Trent, you want to ask the big question. Indeed. So, uh, last movie, uh, we want to talk about is face off directed by John Woo. Uh, ah, yes. what was that like?
2: So that was, that was a lot of fun. It was the first time I had worked with Neil Spizak who was the designer on that. Uh, we had both graduated from the same, uh, university. And so we knew s- some people in common and, um, you know, I had come, I was just finishing a, f- a film in, uh, Toronto, um, the long kiss, good night. Um, Renny Harlan. Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis and, uh, uh, Sam Raimi or, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, I mean, and, um, um, and I got a call, uh, can you come to California? I'm doing this big, this big John Woo movie. And so I came down and, um, and yeah, that was, that was a, a fun one. You know, we did this whole big prison thing and, uh, we got to go to an oil platform off the the coast, uh, uh just up the, up the bay here. And, um, uh, again, the, uh, building that I was talking about downtown that we used to use it for shooting a lot, the Pacific electric building. Um, we built that whole uh, sort of penthouse, uh, um, fancy big apartment interior thing there. Um, and uh, with John Wu, a lot of shootouts, a lot of big. Uh, awesome action. <laughs> elaborate uh,
0: stuff.
1: Yeah. Trent, you want to ask the big. So the, big kahuna.
0: so the Big Kahuna, as Parth is built up, is what's the last great film you've watched? And it could be a first viewing or a rewatch. But something that really hit home.
1: It can also be TV. Ah.
2: Last great film I've watched. Uh, I'm an old film buff. Sure. I really do like, you know, I've I don't know how many times I've watched the Maltese Falcon. You know, or uh, Casablanca, or or any of that old stuff. I still uh, I still enjoy it. Um, there's a there's sort of a gem out there um, that uh, I hadn't seen in a long time, but I think it's a really really interesting and a great film, um, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Wow. Yeah. Classic, a classic, classic
2: movie. You know, it's it's a classic old, oldie, um, but a goodie. But uh, Gregory Peck and those kids, um, it's just, it's just a, a really, it's got, it's a message movie. Um, it's black and white. Um, it's right at the point when they stopped kind of making black and white movies and started making more like, what we have today. Um, but uh, that, and I, had, I hadn't seen this, I'm uh, going to do two here, just Please. because. Uh, because I hadn't seen this in a long, long time. And a friend of mine, uh, a younger person who had never seen it, and uh, I said, you have to see this movie, uh, Chinatown.
0: Yeah, Ro- Roman Polanski.
2: It's It's a classic. It's just Robert Town. I know it's
0: considered like one of the, one of the few perfect movies like up there with back to the future and stuff, just in terms of like plot efficiency.
2: Yeah. Yep. And it looks great. It's, you know, it's, it's well designed and uh, yeah. And, and just uh, if you're not aware, um, uh, David Fincher is working on, uh, and I believe it's with Robert Town a um, prequel to Chinatown.
0: Oh, oh, oh Oh my God. This is quite, quite Mm -hmm. an announcement to make. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's, I'm not
2: announcing it because it's out there. It's, it's, you can, you can find info on it, uh, but it's in, been in the works for a little while. And um, it's something that's, you know, uh, we're looking forward to seeing what happens with it.
0: Well, yeah, I think uh, that sounds like a logical conclusion. Thank you so much, Steve Arnold, for coming on. Uh, Very he's, welcome. He's worked on, you know, Spider-Man and Unbreakable and Forrest Gump and Fear and Loathing and a bunch of other stuff you've heard of. Um, thanks so much. We appreciate your time.
2: Ah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys.
1: Trent, Parth. Was that a good interview?
0: One of one of the best, dare I say?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think twenty twenty one. We've been uh, we've been getting some pretty cool people. Is this season two officially? I, I guess. guess. How how do you measure seasons on a podcast?
0: I I kind of considered the end of season one to be you know the the start of of the new calendar year. Okay, that's fair. But but uh. As I'm sure our our listeners may have noticed, the the start of the year was very female guest dominated, which was very it nice. It was because during the, the 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 origins of the show, we were there was accidentally too many men in the, in a row, and we were like too ah. many
1: white men taking control, much we, like this podcast. We
0: were like, ironically, this is very reflective of the film industry, but. Uh, we're glad we could change it up, but speak- Steve Arnold is, is a white guy, and that's great. So are some of us on this podcast. Well, uh, Parth, what uh, want to tease out what comes next? Did we interview someone recently? Someone who wrote a movie? We, I think we should keep the surprise of which movie and which writer. But um,
1: let's just say it might star somebody who you might see on a Weekend
0: Update. Oh. Oh, I see what you did there. Um, uh, not, he, I'm it's not our saying. First, it's the first screenwriter guest we've had on the show. So, uh, beside all the jokes, we're actually pretty excited. Um, yeah. So, um, are we. Uh, what are we doing next week? Oh, next week we're discussing Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider Man with our friend and film school rival, Alex friend Lane. Friend is a strong word. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you want to um insult alex on mic now or do you want to save it for next week um i'll give one insult are you ready yeah
1: he's so smelly actually let me give two sure alex lane more like alex lame do you think alex listens to the show definitely not definitely not and neither should neither should you neither should you that's why we're canceling the podcast (laughs) Uh,
0: remember that interview we just said that we had yeah uh, it, it, it we're just gonna dump it in the in the digital archives never to be yeah. seen again
1: sorry guys we would have liked for you to have seen it or heard I, it i guess
0: I, I i i hate to cancel the show during spider-man week but do, i guess it's not do. happening ah, bummer
1: sorry alex lame